There came a time in my life, and I'm sure it's very much similar to the rest of y'all, where I absolutely had no hope. I couldn't stop drinking. I hated my own guts. And the only solution seemed to be to stick a gun in my mouth and just blow the back of my head out. I put the gun in my mouth. I took it out and became aware of a burning desire to live. Without even knowing what Alcoholics Anonymous was about, or even much more than knowing the name, I came to believe that a power greater than myself would be necessary to restore me to sanity, and I asked for that help. I was sent into a treatment center, lived in a halfway house, and came home, got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, what will I need to do not to drink? And I was told that I would have a one day at a time or a daily reprieve from alcoholism, the mental obsession and the physical allergy, contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. I said, that's fine. What's a spiritual condition? And they said, this is a process. And this process are the basics of recovery, are the fellowship, which we talked about yesterday and had four beautiful speakers, people who made me cry. Today we're going to talk about that second leg that I was told would be necessary for the maintenance of my spiritual condition was how to live today by the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what today will be, the basics in recovery, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard our next speaker in uh, St. Simon's Island last year. I've seen David around for some time, but he talked about the 12 steps. He told his story revolving around how the 12 steps are essential in his life. I give you David T. from Jacksonville, Florida. My name is David, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's great to see so many people here today. I generally enlarge upon the number because I play this tape back to my home group. I... I was born in 1926, and from 1926 to 1939, I didn't drink anything. And from 1939 to 1970, I drank everything I could get my hands on, as often as I could. In 1970, I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, and by the grace of God and the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the fellowship, I've been sober. A little family background, uh, there's six children, the seventh was a, was a brother-in-law, and I'm a survivor. My uh, brother John, a year older than I, died at 43 years of age. He practiced medicine, graduated from Pitt at the top of the class. Alcohol killed him. My uh, brother-in-law died at uh, 47. Alcohol killed him. My, I was a lawyer a trial attorney. My brother Fred died at 57. Alcohol killed him on his third bout of pancreatitis. We had alcoholic has the mind of a jaywalker, and my sister was killed jaywalking. And uh, the May, May before last, my brother Jim was killed jaywalking. So I come by this honestly. My mother and father didn't drink my father was born in 1875. My mother was born in 1889. There's 18 years difference between the eldest and I, the youngest. And they didn't uh, drink because of the, I think the alcoholism was on my mother's side. Years after my grandfather, Byer, had died, I said to my father, wasn't it a shame that Grandpa Byer died, uh, shook so much? Was it, uh, what was it, Parkinson's? Or He said, hell, he just drank too much. 
And I said, I never knew that. So for God's sake, don't tell your mother I told you. And that's uh, that was the attitude that, uh, that came up at that time. And before I was 13 years of age, I swore up and down with all the devastation that my brothers had caused in that family. I would never take a drink of that damn stuff. And they had repealed prohibition. And the next day, that Green River whiskey was on the on the market. And they had people in the public schools uh, in Pittsburgh giving intensive lectures about the evils and the harm of alcohol. And they had us all scared to death to, to, to ever... Ever pick up a drink? But curiosity finally got me one time, and, and I and I wanted to see what that stuff tasted like and what the hell it was that uh, that was so bad about it. And after my first drink, I had a spiritual change of heart faster than Bill Wilson's flash of light. I changed my damn mind. I thought, well, you know, the rest of them can't handle it, but I'm sure that I can. And it's uh, ridiculous uh, what they had to go through. And anybody that's lived around long enough certainly isn't ever going to drink too much. And I think about all the educational programs that have come in, but you know, they say you've got to experience the steps to know what you're talking about, not work them, but experience them. Well, you got to experience drinking that damn alcohol. Watching somebody else do it won't do it for you, and watching somebody else do this program won't do it for you. Now, page 51 of the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous mentions the most important fact in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's our conscious contact with God. Now, I had to develop a conscious contact with God that paralleled my craving for alcohol because I couldn't go more than three hours without a drink. And I guess that's what they meant by improving my conscious contact with God because you couldn't improve my conscious contact with liquor. I seldom went three hours without taking a drink, but that's the most that I could go. That the craving would come on me. As I understood the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous, that meant that I should have a conscious contact with God that would come on me at least every three hours, and I worried, what in the hell is that going to be? Because I sure didn't want to be one of these religiously intoxicated individuals. <clears throat> at least with a drunk, you can put the cork in the bottle and turn him off, you know. But uh, a religiously intoxicated individual is a hopeless situation. <laughs> I want to tell you what that is. There are times during the day that parallel my craving for alcohol, what it used to be, where I just get a, an unsolicited wave of gratitude apropos of nothing come over me. Now, when I was drinking, when I got out of bed, I had to take two or three or four drinks of liquor before I could get one to stay down. And then when I got that thing to stay down, I could do remarkable things for a short period of time. Sign my name, cross the street, that got bad later on because I got a Jake leg, that sciatica. That. And uh, shave, and if I were lucky, brush my teeth. When I get up in the morning now, I have the 24-hour book, which starts for today, said, are we working the AA program exactly as it is in the book? Great question. But I have to read those pages. Now, if the first page doesn't stay down and comes up like that drink did, I keep reading that damn book till I feel as spiritually firm 
about going to the office as I felt as sure of myself when I had enough liquor to get there to sign my name. And I don't leave home until I'm in the same spiritual condition that I used to be spiritually inducing with alcohol. And I think that that thing in itself has added to my daily sobriety more than any other one particular thing. Now, I still at this particular point think it's a great help for me that I was told when I first get in, when you get up in the morning, it's no use yelling for help. Just make up your mind what meeting you're going to go to that night. And then during the course of the day, if difficulties come up, make sure that you make notes of them so that when they ask after that silent moment of meditation, is there anybody that would like to have anything or any problem to mention today, and it's miraculous because as soon as I get in that place, I'm comfortable and the cares of the day have left me. So I know that the day is going to have a happy con- conclusion, and I think it. Every alcoholic likes to work from the answer backwards. The first 100 that came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I was told, and I read in the book, did not have 12 steps to go by. The young lady mentioned that this morning. What happened to them was that they had two steps. Trust God and clean house. Because that's all that we're able to understand at that point. Now, we can read the rest of these damn things, but, but we're fearful. And we turn our will and our life over to care of God minusculely, day by day, that we live even these great feats are minuscule to what we actually did when we were drinking. And I guess about three days after I'm dead, I will completely have turned my will and my life over to the care of God. But I'm still trying, and that thing that said, be ye perfect even as your heavenly Father, simply means that you do your best and let God do the rest. God's not finished with me. He's not finished creating the universe. And the program is kind of like the Greek present tense instead of the Hebrew present tense. That this program, we keep growing along spiritual lines every day. We get larger, and the intensity is greater. The same as the Big Bang Theory. And I've had some friends that have seen their best day in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I pray to God I never do. And this has generally occurred by the end of 18 months. And it's been proven you can stay sober on any damn thing in this world for 18 months, but unless you've got the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you're going to go out and drink again. Two and a half years. And then between the seventh and eighth year, I've seen an awful lot of them go out and drink again. And you know that anything after that period of time that I've seen in my time, it takes them another damn seven years before they can ever get one whole year of sobriety in again. See. And they say the first time that you get this program, I was told that you get it on a silver platter, and I tell you that that's rough enough, that silver platter. I sure don't ever want to sober up again, and I pray to God that that will never be the case. Between the 12th and 13th year, we've had a lot of recidivism of the people that I've been in contact with from coast to coast in the United States. Between the 17th and 18th year, between the 21st and 22nd year, I was on the program six months when I had to go down to Pompano and I stopped in at the 101 Club. And they're used to a lot of sharpshooters on the Gold Coast of Florida. 
people that have bought the little book called Stinkin' Thinkin' that can make a newcomer think that he is an old-timer and nothing flat and get that card game going and clean you out before you know what hit you. But they have some pretty old-timers down there that got an eye like an eagle. And he walked in, and I, he said, where are you from, Dick Steiger? I said, Jacksonville. He said, that's the worst damn place in the world. I said, I just got here. <laughs> he said, no, he said, you see that fellow? And I did, there was the late Bob Sweeney over there, sober for 21 years, drunk. And it hit me right between the eyes. There is no such thing as an old-timer and Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just like business. The day you think you get established is the day you start to lose your tail. See? 27th and 28th year. Last year, a very dear good friend, friend of all of ours in Alcoholics Anonymous, failed to continue to grow along spiritual lines. I've seen a lot of uh, people, uh, the bridge never got anybody drunk sleeping under the bridge. Uh, too much money did and too much complacency did. And uh, that's what happened. He picked up that, that booze again. Quit working with newcomers. Say, I'm blessed. I'm, I'm in the Caduceus Club. I'm on the impaired physicians thing. I'm a dentist. And, and, and I'm on the, the board of Gateway, which is under grand jury investigation right now for some of their actions. But I'm tied up with new, uh, with, with new people all the time, and you know no long, how, how long I've been in, it's just absolutely amazing what a guy 20, year, 20 minutes sober can ask you that you've never heard before in your life. You wonder where they're getting questions these days. So they keep, uh, they, they, they keep you humble in a hurry. Or somebody that's been in the program six months come up with an answer on something you've been trying to figure out for years. You probably didn't have the presence of mind to ask because you didn't have the courage to ask since you've been in for a while. It's been great for me. It's been absolutely great for me. But I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and that my life was unmanageable was because they had... Uh, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous... It, you lost your license if you said you were an Alcoholics Anonymous. That was the briefest conversation you could get into. But, and uh, when I came in, that didn't make a damn bit of difference. I was interested in living. So I got this one particular piece of trust that I don't think will ever come out again is when they had me stand up and speak at that period, and I had to go all over Florida and tell them, my name's David Thompson, I'm a dentist, and I'm an alcoholic, and pray to God that nobody in that audience would go down there and and, and, and tell the board of dentistry, the professional board down there, and they never did. They never did. And I experienced a sense of trust that I feel that some of us have been sheltered from under our new system. But it's the greatest experience in the world. It was like suddenly all my patients and everybody that ever knew anything about alcoholism was on my side. What I had been finding... I found what I'd been looking in this program. I found what I had been looking for in that bottle. I was never certain what the hell I was looking for in there, but I knew I always came close when I drank, but I never quite hit the dimension that I wanted, but it was a hell of a lot better than, than not having it. Finally, in Thanksgiving of 1969, they put me in a place called Grant Haven, which was run by Dr. Bedell, a psychiatrist, who is the non-alcoholic founder, who was the non-alcoholic founder of Alcoholics Anonymous in the state of Florida.
And he kept me in there 28 days for observation, detoxification. And because my brothers had tried Alcoholics Anonymous after World War II to get the monkey off their back to get back home and to get into the hospital again on their drinking, I knew that AA was a good ace in the hole. I had also read the book when I was 14 years old when they sent me off to school because they had to do that. At 13, I had discovered a threefold disease, cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women. And they put me off there in a school that would be unconstitutional to run today. And that postponed me long enough to get out of that thing. So I knew alcoholism was a disease, but it would never happen to me. When I was out there, he said, would, uh, in, in the hospital, he said, would you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? And I, and I knew that, that the answer to that's yes. Because uh, we are now down to the ace in the whole bit. And I went to the meeting, and I came on back, and this guy at this meeting, been sober 18 years, the late Earl Warren from Coco, had a ridiculous story, and even, even if the statute of limitations had run out, he was crazy to get up there and tell him all that. But he lapsed into sanity for a moment. He said, now, if you don't think you're an alcoholic, what I want you to do is to go out and drink again. I thought, now, there's a thought. Uh, I'd hate like uh, I'd hate like hell to be sober for five years and find out I wasn't an alcoholic. And they let me out of that hospital. And it was between Christmas and New Year's. Now, many of you know this feeling. And, and, and I got back in the office, and I walked around St. Vincent's Hospital, and everybody had this great big smile on their face. People that I didn't know had this great big smile on their face. And what they were thinking, they wouldn't tell me, and I didn't dare ask. But I thought what I did was overdose myself. You know, you get three fists a day, you're going to, that's, anybody tell you that's too much, you know, get something reasonable like a pint, and you'd be all right. And I took that pint that first night, and I drank it, and nothing happened the next day, so you know I was all right. And uh, by Groundhog Day, I was back in that hospital again. So tomorrow would be... Uh, tomorrow would be 17 and a half years I've been without a drink. When I got back in that hospital, I knew my last drunk was to find out if I could drink again. And I knew that I could never drink again. Now, I thank God for all the good news and all the bad news I get every day. Because the worst news that I ever got in my life was that I'd never be able to drink again. So you better thank God for your bad news just as enthusiastic as you thank God for your good news. And the second worst news that I ever got was that you had to join Alcoholics Anonymous, and that was insult to injury. But that's So now I've learned to thank God for the good and the bad. Before that, it never made any sense to me whatsoever. I had gone out, and I I was powerless over alcohol, and my life was unmanageable. That's obvious if you're sitting in a nut house. And Dr. Bedell said to me, now, I don't think you understood me when I was out here before. He said, I don't treat alcoholics. I treat crazy people. He said, we'd like you to go nine months without any alcohol, coffee, cigarettes, tobacco. He said, drug-free is drug-free, and i got to find out what the hell kind of person you are, because if you're not an alcoholic, you're in serious trouble. (laughs) And that was a very sobering experience when I found that out. He was saying, most of you guys, and you can save yourself and all your friends' money, are going to be told that they're schizophrenic with paranoid tendencies or vice versa, he said. But uh, but that's not it. You don't know it until you're off of a 
off of all of this stuff. And so we come to the second step of Alcoholics Anonymous was that uh, I was in a nut house and that uh, my family traits had the mind of a jaywalker. That's ignorance, carelessness, and indifference. And that certainly fit my history. He pointed that out to me. So I, I, I knew that a, a power greater than myself was going to have to restore me to sanity, but when I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God because I had a choice. You see, one day I could pay, one month I could pay the office rent, and the other month I could pay the apartment rent. And, the ch- and I'd, 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 I'd left home, and I was divorced. And when I got back out to that hospital again, the psychiatrist said, perhaps you don't remember this. He said, they want your driver's license because you totaled five cars in one night. He was taking my inventory. He said, they want you for back alimony and child support. The income tax people want to figure you on the last five years, and, 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 and generally it's only three. I don't. No Wi-Fi. Maybe they want a dollar average your taxes. So we have two women outside here that say they're Mrs. Thompson, and you're the only Thompson in here. <laughs> and that's the first time that this place looked good to me. <laughs> and he said, "You got to go out now because we don't keep you here. We just uh, you got to go to AA meetings. They treat drunks. I don't treat drunks." <laughs> And uh, my family called, can't we send them to the Institute of Living? Can't we send them here? Can't? He said, an alcoholic of this description has got to sober up where he got drunk. Sobering up in an institution and bringing him back and trying then to put him into the mainstream doesn't work. He just gets institutionalized that way. So there I was. I, I, I got over there in the 90 meetings in 90 days. You had to go for identification, and they had to be all speakers' meetings. We had uh, six groups in Jacksonville at the time, which meant three times a week, making it look like we had 18 groups. So we went to everything within a 100-mile radius, which would be a uh, 75-mile radius, really, or 100 miles. Daytona and Brunswick and helped start up Nahana and Waycross and uh, Keystone, all these places that that were rather a travel log that were a big help to get it going. And I and I, I made a, my mind to turn over my will and my life over to the care of God because nobody else would have it at that particular time but Charlie Farrell. Charlie Farrell had you read a lot about him in the newspaper. He'd been a because of, of all the trouble that he was always in. He was a retired top sergeant with the army from nineteen fourteen. And then he had a civil service job, a double dipper that way, and then he kind of ran a gambling thing out there at the Naval Air Station and also had some hot merchandise. But he sobered up, and he had been sober for 17 years. And the reason I listened to him was because he had been in more trouble than I'd been in, and he had some answers, and I would gladly settle for what he had right then. And I was standing in the club, and, and he said, I know what's the matter with you. He said, oh, you've got a belly full of booze and a belly full of women, and you ought to make all right, because most of the new guys come in here, get hot, and start chasing all these damn women around the club, and they forget what the hell they joined AA for. 
He said, the way you feel about him right now, it's great. He said, you'll be okay. And I took him home and he came by that night and I had all my stuff laid out. Canceled checks, suspended jail sentences, how much money I owe. I'm going to talk about page 11 of the textbook Alcoholics Anonymous that I didn't recognize until after I experienced it. And he looked at there and he said, uh, you know, uh, we better go to a meeting because you're not going to get it tonight and it's going to get worse every day for the next five years. Take you about five years to get the hell out of this. I went to see Harry Gammon for a second opinion. He'd been sober five years longer than Harry. And I said, Harry, how long did it take you to get even with the board now? And Harry says, five years, just as quick as I, if I'd ask him his middle name. So I said, I accepted five years. It would be about what it would take for me to, to get level with the board. And as I walked out the door with Charlie, turned around, he said, now, I don't know how you feel about your higher power, but right now you got to admit the devil's got you by the ass. <laughs> and you know, that's the first time I ever gave that any thought, and that was a spiritual awakening, and that was my first real honest-to-God spiritual awakening because I didn't believe in that guy. But I do now. I do now. I see him at work all the time. And I can see him coming from afar. I was more familiar and I had a better conscious contact with him than I ever had with anything else in my life up to now in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we took this inventory. I, I at, the, at, at that particular time also when I came in, I said I wasn't going to take a this step. Now this just shows you that what happened to the first 100 is going to happen to you. Because you get the first two steps, then you get the, then you get the six steps awareness that are on page 292, and then finally after about three to five years, you are aware of all 12 steps. And they call them the 12 steps of awareness, and they say that awareness is the first step to humility, and that humility is honesty in action. And until they put that thing into focus for me, I had a hell of a time experiencing it. And then they said, let's go back now to the chapter called There is a Solution. And I want you to read that after every meeting, they used to tell me, because some of the answers you get in that meeting are a little cuckoo. He said, you're going to get a whole bunch of literature that's a little cuckoo. So go back to There is a Solution, because if you ever forget this damn answer, we're in trouble. It says there, you're going to have a variety of religious experiences. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in existence if it wasn't for James. And the variety of religious experiences that we have are the 12 steps. Now, there's some principles in there. But he said, the first 100 were at least familiar with the Oxford program, with the exception of those over in Ohio, which knew Emmett Fox. And the programs were very similar. And there are only four principles, honesty, unselfishness, love, and purity in thought, word, and deed. Three times four is twelve. Now, you're going to hear a lot of Little Red Riding Hood with some Cinderella in it, but that's what the hell it is, right there, see? And you don't have to memorize those four absolutes. Those They are absolute in that these four principles are the foundation of all religions known to man throughout the world. You don't, they're there. And that's why this program fits any religion with any culture that you ever want to get into. And that's why everybody, what, feels immediately home, at home, when they get into an AA meeting. You may feel like hell before afterwards. You may feel like hell before that. But you come in, and all of a sudden, because you're not even aware 
of the fact that these four principles being given to you when you come in, in the sense of the fellowship that we had never experienced before, that we automatically disarm the situation by laying aside a difference, and we just feel comfortable on the program. And that tenth step, it says there is a spiritual axiom that if you don't feel comfortable, there's something wrong with you. That's what we have a little saying to my patients. The patient is never wrong, you know. But, uh, that's generally not true, but <laughs> if they talk long enough, they're like an alcoholic. They'll tell you the truth. Well, I, I admitted to God, to myself, and to another person, which I swore I would never do because my attorney told me to take the Fifth Amendment, not the Fifth Step. <laughs> because the late Dave McCarter said, you got I, you promised to do everything once in the program and you got to go to a retreat. And I thought, boy, this is great. I don't know what a retreat is. And he said, it's a Catholic retreat. And I said, that's even better because I'm not Catholic and I can't lose. You know, that old thing about an alcoholic, what have I got to lose? Or don't lose anything. Or So I went on down there with him, and, and uh, the priest down there had been an alcoholic. Recovered, defrocked, and from and then he went to washing dishes, and then he came back. And and this year it was the first year he decided that everybody that went to that retreat would take the fourth and fifth step. I had no way out of there. I walked the meetings for the first five years because I didn't have a driver's license, and if I did have a driver's license, I couldn't afford a car. But I couldn't get out of there, and Dave McCarter that took me down there thought that he didn't really want to take a fourth and fifth step. He was off on a retreat, but uh, we did. So if you go to this program, what happened to the first 100 is going to happen to you whether you like it or not. It's just like it gets better every day whether you like it or not. It does. That's where I learned early in the game, and that's where I took. Now, I cannot tell you how many fourth or fifth steps that I have taken. I swear to God, I cannot. But I want to tell you that I never volunteered for a damn one of them. I got a lot of help when I first came in because the judge said to me, what happened with all the money that you uh, sold on your Timaquana property on the water next to the golf club? And I said, I spent it. And he said, on what? See, now, I couldn't tell him, Your Honor, I'm only on the third step. I haven't taken the fourth step yet. So, so this, uh, just, just going around cleaning the house, this is why these 12 steps are what happened to you. When I came in, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. When I came into AA, I was so damn ready to have him do that that you won't believe it. Now, it's after I got better and the wrinkles got out of my belly, I got my defects of character back. But I didn't have any trouble, and, and the people that I know that are sincere coming into this program that don't have a job and are wondering from hand to mouth one place and are trying to be as nice as they can be. It's just absolutely amazing. It's after we get, get going that I notice that. I humbly ask him to remove my shortcomings, and this is a threefold disease. When I knew that I was with the cucumber pickle deal, that I'd lost my tolerance for alcohol. And I remembered what the Oxford program, which I had joined my, because I wanted to be able to understand the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous, because that's where they came from. My sponsors in Mechanicsburg was in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. 
But that comes from the old thing of, of my grace is sufficient unto you. When Paul had that thorn in his side, he said, you know, I've seen you, the blind see, the lame walk, how about this damn thing I got? Why don't you relieve it for me? And God said, my grace is sufficient unto you. And my definition of a dry drunk is anybody whose God's grace isn't sufficient to. I have never seen an alcoholic pick up a drink, a grateful alcoholic pick up a drink. So I, I was taught as a kid, God make me grateful for the blessings that we are now about to receive. Whether you like them or not, by God, make me grateful for them. They, these, these things that they used to say, and I, and I pray every day for them to make me grateful for what I'm not, now about to, I don't ask them for an understanding. It doesn't say having had a thorough understanding of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. No, it used to say having had a spiritual experience. See? The original used to say having had a variety of spiritual experiences as a result of these steps, we experience a series of spiritual awakenings. We had a lot of spiritual experiences before, but we weren't aware of it. Uh, but the easiest way to do of it all would have been, when they argued about changing the 12th step of this program, would have been simply to write down, having experienced a spiritual awakening. Because when they dropped the word experienced out of the conclusion of this program, they forgot where the hell they came from in chapter 2. And you can't get these fellows and lecture to them and pound it on them. You can walk with them. But you can't drill a hole in here and pound this stuff in. And, and nothing that I have found has kept my program adding dimensions than working with newcomers. Because the more I try to explain it to them, the more I understand it, and probably the less they do, but the more that I understand it as I, as I go along. I know that uh, I made a list of all the people that I had harmed, and I became willing to make amends to them. Man, was I willing to make amends to them. Until I got some money. <laughs> I was willing never to drink alcohol until I had a drink of it. And I, you know, I had this uh, spiritual experience of it. So I begrudgingly, not cheerfully, as you, they would have you do, put one foot in front of the other. And went over and gave it to them. And it was afterwards that I felt this sense of relief. See. And I think that I got only two great senses of relief was the first time I stood up and I had to trust everybody in Hell's Half Acre and told them that I was an alcoholic. And the other one is when I finally paid off my last debt from my drinking episode at just about the end of five years. There was always enough money to do what I was supposed to do. But when I used to pray, lead us not into temptation, he did a damn good job. There wasn't a five-cent piece left over to tempt me to do anything with. And, and that's how it's worked out for me. Now, of course, I get these things just as I'm able to handle them. And they said that the material, I don't know how you feel about money, but with me, it's right up there with oxygen. <laughs> I, I want that very clear. God supplies all the oxygen I need, 
That's why I don't trust him for that money yet. I don't know. My difficulties will come from just not trusting God. Yours may be acceptance, but if I trusted God, I'd be able to accept anything that ever came along. My, the heart of my program is my reward is going to come directly proportional to how much I trust God. And I have no reason to distrust him. I had pancreatitis twice. And I didn't even know it until I applied four and a half years more for some more insurance. And they turned me down because I had pancreatitis. I said, well, I was a blackout drinker. I said, you got to keep... Key punch operators got the wrong Thompson down there, and they wrote back and told me where I was in the hospital and who treated me, and then I vaguely. If you see a man drowning out there, go on out there and get him because he may be deaf and dumb. Don't wait for him to holler. Because you don't know when you're dying, when you're drinking alcohol. There is something to that. You wake up dead. So I said to my sponsor, I got this list here, and it says to pick out the worst guy you got on this list and go see him first. And he knew my story, and I'm going to go over and see him now. He said, sit down, because you'll get killed if you go over and see that man. He said, it is insane to make amends to an insane person. He said, you've got to let them get well, too. He said, I will tell you. If you try to work steps with that sponsor, I feel sorry that uh, for you, because if you're anything like I, you can get into too much trouble. So I made direct, I tell them, you know, talk's cheap. I am aware of what I did wrong. I deeply regret it. And I pray to God that I get the opportunity to make it up to you financially or whatever it is. Those have been the quickest answers to prayers that I have ever gotten in my life. Those the damnedest opportunities have come up for me to help out people whom I had harmed through one of their family at one time or another. I have gotten that opportunity to make that up. That's a reward. So the, I have keep that prayer in mind. I pray uh, during the day that, that I can promptly, step 10 is continue to mind your own business. And when you're wrong, promptly admit it. I didn't know how to mind my own business until I joined AA. I had no idea how to mind my own business. And they told me that it was the collapse of the inventories, collapse of the alibi system by means of the inventory system. And that's how you keep it collapsed. And that's what they, they, they said that most people in this program are going to have to have a deep spiritual transition. And for you, that's going to be the collapse of your alibi system because I could understand that. And I try to keep my alibi system collapsed regularly. So I continue to take personal inventory. Now, the first part of step 11 in the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous is different than the 12 and 12 at this point, at other points. So sometimes you're going to get confused. The first part of step 11 said, was there somebody that I did not take the 10th step with promptly that day? That's on the bottom of the page, last paragraph. And I write that down. And that's how I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, too. If I have something bothering me, I used to turn it over for one hour for the meeting, and I would take the Oxford program principle, I would write down what's bothering me at night, and I would go to sleep on it because I would trust God to give me the solution in the morning. I would sometimes turn the world over to him. I got from turning it over to him for one hour, to eight hours. And finally I said, I'm going to make a 
I deal with you, God. You gave me, you borrowed me this life, you loaned me this life, and I'm going to loan, loan it back to you as often as I can, every three hours a day, if possible. I want to thank you for asking me here, and I'd like to close with one of the best things that I ever heard. My life was a fellow that was bringing another one into the club, an old army sergeant. Russo, down at the 101 Club, brought this guy in. He said, you know, that's my family doctor over there, and that fellow over there is the guy that delivered the babies, and that's the judge that I saw before, and, and this fellow over here was another such-and-such such guy with prominence, and the guy said, I want to tell you something. In alcoholics, there are no big shots. There are no little shots. But one shot 